Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day. What's up, Chicago? I'm Justin Bull, in for Aaron Allen, and this is The Rundown. When you live in Chicago, it's easy to take this city for granted. Around any corner, you might bump into history, like Al Capone's old two-flat, or the humble building where house music was born, or the church that hosted Emmett Till's funeral. So it just makes sense that the Chicago Public Library System has been a blueprint for libraries around the world. In fact, the Windy City is something of a library town. We're home to the headquarters of the American Library Association, and a number of Chicago-based universities have renowned programs that train librarians. The CPL system turns 150 this year, and we wanted to take a beat to celebrate that century and a half. The story of the library is the story of Chicago, you know, so whether you're interested in history or you're interested in architecture or neighborhood development, um, you know, it's all in that story. That's Allison Cuddy. She's the host of the new podcast, Library for the People, 150 Years of Chicago Stories. I talked to her and the Chicago Public Library Commissioner, Chris Brown, about the anniversary and also about the significant cultural battles that librarians today are in the midst of including the controversies over book bans and drag story hours. In her podcast, Allison maps out the history of our public library system, starting with the unusual story of its creation after the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And this is a story that I was not familiar with. We did not have a public library at the time of the Great Chicago Fire. We were a city of libraries, though, and that, I think, is something that the podcast really um, explores and celebrates. So we lost so many books in that fire, and there was this recognition by a number of people who had attachments to Chicago that um, this would be one of the devastations of the fire. Mm -hmm. There are millions of books burned, all sorts of printed materials, really important records to the city's history. And so... They sort of out of this act of sympathy and generosity for our loss, kind of, you know, donated a slew of books and including one from then the Queen of England, um, Billa, Sherman Billa Thomas, who's in the first episode of the podcast, describes it as possibly the most boring book ever written because it's kind of a history of her family. Um, but, you know, it's inscribed, it's signed by her. It's this beautiful book. It's still in the archive. Um, and that sort of formed the basis for the collection, right? So that we didn't have a place to put these books. We didn't even have a library system. And so, you know, the a number of people, including, you know, pretty powerful women, society women, uh, philanthropists of the time, got together and said, we need a library. I mean, it's great that we have these books, but we actually need a public mm -hmm. library, a library where anyone can go read, not a private library. And so um, they got together, they petitioned for this, they uh, worked with the city and then the state um, to get laws passed so they could actually collect taxes to fund the formation of a library. Um, but we ended up building really rapidly. I mean, the period after the Great Fire in Chicago was a period of, of enormous development mm -hmm. and innovation, and the library was definitely part of that story. Right. So the Queen's Gift also, uh, did it inspire others to, to donate? Was this the first of many? Yeah, I think we ended up with something like 8,000 books mm -hmm. in that initial collection. Commissioner, does that, that sound right? Um, yeah, that's correct. And 
And then from that and with the funds to support building a public library, we could grow the collection. I mean, and the interesting thing about the history of the library is the library is a space of innovation always, but a lot of that comes from the um, the engagement with the community. So the community would say, you know, we need this, we need these books. You have new immigrant groups coming to the city. Mm. So you need books in those languages, right, to serve that community. Or the community says, you know, it's great that there's this downtown library, but we need a library much closer. And so libraries or versions of libraries were developed for neighborhoods, specific neighborhoods. And that's sort of the template out of which this larger system grew. But I mean, it's always been a kind of a call and response between community and library as to what this space should be. So in that sense, it's also a very powerful public space. Yeah. And Allison, I think you also bring up a a really, I think, good point about our origin story, right? We, we had this big donation from folks across in, in the UK. Um, and, and we've really all the way up through today, we've had this really engaged philanthropic community. Um, our, our library foundation, they've really helped us do a lot of our most innovative industry leading work. Um, we have these incredibly dynamic spaces for youth in Chicago called U Media. They're throughout 29 libraries mm. and they're spaces where youth can really connect with other youth, with librarians, with mentors. And we've had some incredible creatives that have come out of that space. So Chance the Rapper, he developed some of his early mixtapes in our Umedia space. No Name, Saba, Mick Jenkins, just incredibly talented Chicagoans who found that they could not only get the tools they needed to create music in, in these spaces, but also, most importantly, the mentors and the people who could sort of model and teach them and really inspire them to to be creatives themselves. And that's really in large part thanks to our foundation, that philanthropic engagement that goes all the way back to our origin story. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an incredible resource as well. Um, I wanted to get into one other story um, as well. This, this podcast really centers the people who made the library. Uh, and I want to talk about one person in particular who you highlight in the second episode, Allison. Who is Charlemagne Hill Rollins? Can you tell us her story? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Charlemagne Hill Rollins is probably, along with Vivian G. Harsh, um, one of the most famous librarians in the CPL system, um, whose work had an impact definitely here, but also beyond for libraries in general. Um, very um amazing woman. She was a children's librarian. Um, and, and as the commissioner was saying that the services for youth, uh, at the library remain a very powerful uh, mm-hmm. element of the work that they do. So her work continues in a way. So she, um, some, some philanthropists decided that a library needed to be built in Bronzeville because the population of that community was growing exponentially because of the great migration. So all kinds of African-Americans were coming to right. Chicago from the South and there was a great need, right. And also coming out of the legacy of slavery and sharecropping and all of that, a need to understand their history in a different way, right. And to be connected to their story. And so um, 
George C. Hall, who's a great philanthropist, was the head of the Urban League, and Julius Rosenwald, um, who is uh, famous for Sears, but also gave the land to build a branch in Bronzeville. So together they kind of made the, the bricks and mortar happen, the George C. Hall branch, which is a beautiful branch on Michigan Avenue, South Michigan Avenue. Um, and then the library hired Vision Harsh and Charlemagne Hill Rollins to basically run it and put together a collection for their mm. community. And so in doing that, they created this magical space. I mean, they did a lot of community outreach to find out, again, what do people need? What are they looking for in a library? And really engaging with the idea that here's this place and it's for you. It's not, it's, it's really for you. And so come, you know, and they did all kinds of programming. Um, I met a woman uh, who had actually been to hear Charlemagne Hill Rollins read children's literature. She, her story times were famous. She was a wonderful, warm hearted woman. Um, she wrote children's literature. So they did that kind of programming, but they had salons, they had speaker series and it became a kind of um, center for the Black arts renaissance in Chicago. So after the Harlem Renaissance, our kind of own flourishing of literature and art and writing uh, in the African-American community of Chicago. And so all kinds of people ended up going there, talking there, doing research there, Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Richard, Richard Wright. Um, so really made it into this dynamic community and cultural space. And, and Charlemagne um, not only was a champion of children's literature and literature as well, but she was a champion of equity and access in libraries. She famously wrote a letter to the then head of the American Library Association asking why they were holding meetings in a city where segregation was the, the law of the land. Mm -hmm and advocating for something different. So she was um, fierce, uh, not afraid to challenge the powers that be. And she remains a kind of um, important figure to librarians today. So, you know, someone who's still influencing the way the work gets done now. Right. And, I, you know, you you set that up perfectly because I'm, I'm wondering, Commissioner, where do you see sort of the legacy of Charlemagne Hill Rollins in Chicago, in the Chicago Public Library today? I think there's a, there's a couple of key ways. Uh, Allison mentioned the advocacy work that Charlemagne Hill Rollins did, mm -hmm. uh, all the inclusionary work around um, what children's books were available, just making sure that kids can see themselves reflected in, in their literature in positive ways that are kind of free of stereotype. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I see that same ethos in a lot of our work around, around our response to book bans right now. Like right. we're all very familiar with the just scale of attacks that we're seeing across the country and attempts to ban books. Um, and I think that inclusionary value is very much with us today. Uh, in the podcast, we also delve into the story about how Chicago Public Library was the first the first city library in the country to put forward an intellectual freedom statement. Right. The the way that I see that coming up most frequently right now is challenges around some of our programs. When we when we do uh, a drag queen story hour, really just an attempt to bring in more inclusion. Um, have more representation 
of our collective diversity. Um, they're just still reading children's books or when we, when we have um, someone who identifies as LGBTQ plus, you know, maybe, maybe doing a, a fashion program. Those are programs that still get um, some flack. We still get right. responses on social media challenges about why are you doing this program? And the content, it's really, it's just a children's book. It's just fashion, but the baggage that we still carry as a society around who's being included, who's getting more visibility. Those are still things that we're fighting for today. Allison, in one episode of your podcast, you talk about how the Chicago Public Library developed this intellectual freedom policy in the mid-1930s before the American Library Association. Can you tell me about that policy, which I think is fair to say is, was groundbreaking at the time, um, and and why it needed one at that particular moment? Yeah, we were in the throes of McCarthyism, a, a time of of political extremism and um, and similar to how we respond to things in the present mm -hmm. at the time, there was a committee pulled together. So people, leaders, community members who, um, looked at how we should be responding and determined that this wasn't something that needed to be attacked. It was really about our First Amendment rights. Um, and this is something that every citizen in our country has the right around expression and mm -hmm. that there's also a right to access diverse materials as well as to be able to author them. As I was saying earlier, there are a lot of new, there are a lot of new immigrant groups coming to Chicago in the 1930s. And um, there was a lot of debate in that area era around um, the relationship to the Soviet Union. And mm -hmm. there were books that were pointed out as being um, hostile to the Soviet Union. There were books that were um, considered too sexual. And I guess what had happened previously is that um, books that were called into question were put into the reference section, right? And so like, okay, if people are worried about them, we'll put them here and you have to ask for them. And then that way, no one will inadvertently get these books or be, you know, shocked by them. But this wasn't going to fly anymore. The then librarian, um, head of the brand of the system, as the commissioner said, said, like, we need to bring a committee together to review this. And they did review the books. They found nothing wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And and it sort of reinforced the idea that a library, again, it's not there. Librarians are not there to tell you what to read or what not to read. They're there to help you find what you want to read or watch or experience. Right. And so the, the policy was in an effort to say, look, we we are a space where all ideas can be found. Um and everyone is represented. And we're not in the business of trying to censor ideas. Right. Wow. That in mind, you know, we're on the topic of intellectual freedom. Commissioner, why is it important to have access to information that challenges your worldview? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. I think the more 
insidious issue is, are we inclusionary of the diverse histories of our country, Mm -hmm. right? So Florida has determined that their schools can't require students to know or comprehend the 1619 Project, right? Mm. So this is a book written by a journalist. It's not an issue of misinformation. It's more of an issue of, are we going to include these parts of our of our stories and even though that's a school library where that's happening i think the danger is people people starting to see libraries as spaces where where that's um a norm Mm -hmm. and allison you've been speaking to a lot of people about this this same topic uh, in over the course of the of the podcast i'm just wondering how how what your thoughts are on on all of that well, I mean, it's sort of uncanny, the resonances with these previous times, you know, the 30s, the McCarthy era in our own moment. And and, and I think an important thing to remember is that in the same way that that effort to kind of ban some books in the 1930s at CPL was a, a few members of a community saying this isn't right. We're seeing that happen now. Mm-hmm. And this isn't so this even though the the efforts to to get books out of libraries is widespread across the country. It's not the consensus of what, you know, what the procedure should be at the library by any means. This is not a majority of people. When we remember that we love libraries and we have fond, we recall fond experiences. I think it's also important that we remember what those experiences are really about so that we can rise to these challenges and not let them like the commissioner saying, become the norm because it's not the norm. Very, very well said. Um, I, I wanted to ask about other things that are happening today with the library system. Um, Commissioner, the, the library has seen a number of changes in recent years during Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration. Library got rid of late fees, expanded Sunday hours. Um, and then a few months ago, the library announced three new branches coming to Woodlawn, Back of the Yards, Humboldt Park. Um, and all of these changes seem to me to be an indication of a library system that wants to provide more access. Uh, and I wanted to ask, is, is that right? Is that the right yeah, interpretation? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Short answer, a- absolutely. And um, we've developed some some policy to make make our libraries more inclusive to the students of Chicago. And what that means is normally you come in, you get your library card, you're in with your parent, you have to show your ID. It can be a little bit cumbersome and people have very busy lives. Um, We also know some of our lower income families may be moving around a lot. We really wanted to make sure that um, those with the highest need always were able to get access to their library. And we know a lot of a lot of students, their neighborhood library um, is where they're going after school. Mm-hmm. So we, we developed some more inclusive policies and just removing some barriers. So the 81 Club now makes it so that any Chicago youth can go into our library, immediately get a card, immediately start borrowing all of our digital content, getting access to our computers and broadband, 
and and being able to immediately check out up to five items. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, I recall not being able to get my card immediately because I had to bring a comment statement and exactly. All that kind of thing. Exactly. And right, and you're you're an adult and yeah. if kids coming there after school, they're gonna look at the librarian blank face, like what I don't get it. Why can't I just get a card? So now we've solved that. All youth can immediately get their card. Um, it's exciting that our city, our city leaders, um, our community leaders, that they see our libraries as part of our solution for reinvesting in communities. Hmm. We know revitalizing neighborhoods is a complex challenge. It's not enough to simply put in uh, more retail or affordable housing. Hmm. Um, And our libraries are being looked to as an anchor tenant that can provide stability and sustainability in those neighborhoods. Um, We're not a CBO, we're not fundraising for our core services every year, our libraries are going to be able to be part of those neighborhood revitalization efforts. And we'll be able to be there year after year, providing early literacy support and free broadband and access to technology. Chris Brown is the commissioner of the Chicago Public Library. Commissioner Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Justin. Allison Cuddy is the host of the excellent podcast, Library for the People, 150 Years of Chicago Stories. Allison, thank you for being here. You're welcome. All six episodes of Library for the People are out now, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. Thanks to Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Cleve for editing the show. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. If you love the show, please rate and review us. It helps more people find The Rundown. I'm Justin Bull, in for Aaron Allen. Thank you so much for listening.